You're listening to the DCC Sermon Podcast. Let's join in for this week's message. I want to honor Mark this morning as he comes and shares the word with us. Uh, if you would, honor Mark. But, hey, Mark, Mark is a, he's a history buff. He loves the word of God. And I'm excited to hear what Mark's got to say this morning. Good morning, y'all. Hopefully, I'm going to make this thing work with a handheld microphone. I want to pray before we get started. Uh, this is a, uh, I mean, thinking is not new to me. We all have to do it every day, right? To some degree. But, uh, man, I, I, I spoke to the men a couple weeks ago, a week ago about the fear of God and it got me looking at some things and it caused me to I mean I've all I've been serving God now since 1996 in some capacity or another but he's bigger to me today than he's ever been and I, I, I can go back 8, 10, 12 years and think, I, I can remember my mindset thinking, oh, I got this. I have arrived, you know. First time I ever got asked to speak or preach to somebody, you know, you think, oh, I got this. I'm a preacher, you know. But then the more you uncover about him, the bigger he gets. It's like pulling on a string, a thread, and the more you pull the more stuff keeps coming. Father, we thank you this morning. I thank you for this house of believers. I thank you for your word. Lord, open our hearts and open our ears to hear your word and shut our ears to anything that we don't need to know, to ideas and thoughts that are not of you. Open our hearts that we can hear exactly what you want us to know about you and about your word so that we can grow closer to you and see you more clearly this morning. Amen. I'm going to turn to Proverbs chapter 9 and read a scripture here. I do want to say I've, I've lived recently... I've lived where I live now for, since Abigail was a baby, 20 years, my, old, my daughter. And all those years, I never had a neighbor. Not, not one that I knew. You know, because we were always going and doing. And I, I, My neighbor now, when, he, uh, when they moved in, when I first met him, and after he talked to me for a little bit, he got to know me, and he's like, dude, the guy who lived here before told me he thought y'all were drug dealers. This is my introduction to this guy. I've only talked to him a couple of times. He said, but I talked to Mike Carroll, and he said, no, I know those guys. They're good people. <clears throat> so people are watching. Because we had teenagers coming and going, and they'd be up all night, and my neighbors that I never really met, they assumed the worst. 
<laughs> but, uh, but Jared and Stacy moved in, and that's the first, my whole life, my first real neighbors that I know, you know, that are good neighbors. I can trust them. Anyway, I just wanted to say that. I just thought that was it. I was thinking about that. <clears throat> In Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, it's where wisdom starts. Now, I'm saying that because <clears throat> we wrestle and we entertain a lot of thoughts this day and age. You wrestle with thoughts that are incorrect that you don't realize. What our children, and this is not a, this is not a, Blast at public teachers. But what our public school system allows to be taught is not rooted in truth. Just know that. So when I say the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, what God means there is if you don't have a fear of Him and a respect for Him in front of your face, if that's not the glasses you're wearing, then true wisdom will never come to you. If everything is not based in who he is and what he did, then you're just smart. You're just educated. Because you can't know anything apart from God. Not anything really. So, <clears throat> if the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, we're going to start off talking about that and then I'm going to show you something in Genesis. But I've been reading a book called The Knowledge of the Holy. <clears throat> and I know when God wants me to read something because I just absorb it. And there are some quotes that this guy, A.W. Tozer, says in this book that I cannot shake. I mean, it has caused me to just dwell and contemplate things. And they get bigger. Now, I, I don't... Doesn't matter what you think of this guy, but I just want to. I heard something last night, and just because somebody has weird views sometimes doesn't mean that some of what they say is not true. But I listened to this guy. This guy gave a lecture, a lecture on the book of Genesis. Big, long, the guy Jordan Peterson. Well, he's not a professing Christian, but he has this interest in God's word. So he was talking in his lecture about the book of Genesis at the very beginning. And I want to point this out to you because <clears throat> it's important and it, and it agrees with Scripture. He says, I, you know, and he's a learned man, educated. If you ever listen to him, you realize he's pretty smart. And he's just pace, pacing back and forth like this, you know. He's going, I, I just don't understand. I, I can't understand. I don't know what it means. I can't, I can't grasp it. And he says, I read these little short stories right at the beginning of Genesis. He said, like the story of Cain and Abel. It's like one paragraph long. He said, but every time I read it, 
it just gets bigger. And it's got more layers. And more stuff starts coming out of it. And I can't comprehend how such a short span of words can grow and continue to expose so much information. And all he can say is, I just don't understand. Because he doesn't have the Holy Spirit. But he, he, his intellectual mind and his logic leads him to realize all of this is so much more than just face value. So I, I want to say that that's, that's how we should approach the Word of God. And us having the Holy Spirit, if we will spend time. The reason why we don't spend time, and I know this, if you're not guilty, please don't take it on yourself. But sometimes when I run into something hard to think about, I go think about something else. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? When it's difficult, maybe you just try to approach that another direction. I mean, that's, that's engineering and science, right? It's navigating around big problems, you know? So we naturally go that direction. We try to navigate around difficult things. But God doesn't say that. He wants us to pile off into it head first. He wants us to figure it out. To study and show yourself approved. Figure it out what he wants you to know. Because we have to understand. I'll get on my notes here in a minute. <clears throat> we have to understand that he is huge. He is a big God that we probably never will fully understand. I mean, this is a God, like David mentioned last Sunday, that exists outside of everything you know. You have no way to describe him but to compare him to things you know already. You following me? God can only be like something you already know. And if you don't know much, <laughs> I, I mean, I'm talking about me. If you don't know much, then you don't, God's not very big. You have to read this word to see how big he is. When Ezekiel sees God, any of these guys, when they saw God in the Old Testament, these visions, everything was like or likened unto. They had no words to describe what they were seeing. It was so far outside of their ability to describe that they never say that a cherubim was a, was a goat head, had a goat head. They said it looked like one. And on the other side, it had the face of a man. And on the other side of that, the face of a bull. I mean, so I looked this up. I Googled it like we do everything. And this thing had six wings. And so I looked at artist renderings. It's horrible. It doesn't make any sense. It just goes to show you how little we understand and can comprehend of these descriptions of heavenly things. You know what I mean? It doesn't discourage me. It helps me realize, oh, he's big. This is big. This is hard. It's difficult. It's awful, wonderful. He's big. And that's how our worldview should be. The fear of God 
Well, I'm going to read this, this quote to you. That's what I told you I was going to do 10 minutes ago. <coughs> Our spiritual history will positively... <laughs> if I don't have glasses on, I can't pronounce it right. Our spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Right? I mean, you're never going to be any better than your highest mark. You're never going to be, do anything greater than your highest level that you can attain. Because as humans, we always come in a little under that. Right? I mean, that's just how we are. You come in a little under the best. Some of y'all may reach all of your goals and feel completely accomplished in your lives, but if you are, praise God, that's good. The next quote is, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. When you think of God, everything else hinges upon that. If he's little, then his words have little effect on you. If he's big and the most important, then this book is of vital importance to you. So, when I met David and Wendy, I remember vividly, first time I ever saw David and Wendy, I was at a Little League football field at the old Richter Elementary School before the new one. And they had football practice there. And I remember seeing this white truck drive up, and it had a logo on the door. Remember that truck, Josh? And it said, bit and bridle. <clears throat> and did it say to know him? No. But I got that phrase from David. I remember him quoting it. To know him and make him known. And I thought, i got to meet this guy. Not, 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 the, not the know him and make him known, but the bit and bridle thing. It said, reigning today's youth in the right direction. Yeah, that's what it said. And I loved God. And when I saw that, I thought, that's interesting. I had to meet these people. But I didn't. It was years or a year or so later that I met him. But, but I remember him saying after I met him, it was just a long story about how I met him. And we all slept in the same room with Papa and <laughs> and then David pops up at 4.30. Hey, guys, we're burning daylight. Mike's like, uh, what time do we got to be there? Oh, I'm sorry, my watch stopped at 4.30, and we didn't have to get up till 6. Anyway, that's how I met them all. <laughs> but that's the whole point. Like, I can't shake the idea that I'm standing up here, especially after what I've been studying about the fear of God. I'm almost afraid to open my mouth to say something wrong. And if I wasn't being compelled to speak to you this morning, then I would just stop and go sit down, and hopefully Kobe could come up here and take over or something. Because if you have a clear picture of God, which I'm not saying I'm perfect and I know everything about God, what I'm saying is, is that I already thought he was big, but now, when you read and slow down and ingest the Word of God and see just how big He is, that's where the fear of God comes from. That's the reason why the world is in the shape it's in. 
Because they have no fear of God. That's why everything's distorted. Seeing God correctly, respectfully, is where wisdom starts. When we see him correctly, then we can see other things, how they really are. Your children's view and your view on creation is of vital importance. It's not a silly science. It's not this little thing that you can take or leave. It's where everything started. And it's how you see the rest of the world. If you believe that we came from monkeys or out of a pool of water, then life has no value to you. You can try to whip it up all you want to, and all of it is based in emotion. But the only value that life can ever have is knowing that God created it. And that apart from that, we're nothing. It, it changes your worldview. When you look at something and say, that's not what God intended. That might be. That might be okay. That's definitely not it. You know, if everything's okay and you have your own truth, then who are you to say or have an opinion about anybody doing anything? But we have something to contradict the world. We have to have a correct view of God, and that's my attempt this morning (laughs) as time is ticking away. Here's another quote for you. To fear God and not be afraid, this is the paradox of faith. Paradox is not a word I regularly use in my vocabulary, so I had to look that up. And it's a statement that is seemingly contradictory or opposed to common sense, yet it's perhaps true. The Bible tells us over and over again the fear of the Lord, all these things, but then we're supposed to be able to approach him unafraid. It's because we don't understand and we don't have a clear view of who God is. You have to contemplate this and understand that that fear is a reverence and a fear of respect for someone that is way outside of time, space, and everything we know. He is all-powerful. He is everywhere all of the time. And he knows everything. He is fearful. He can strike terror. All of these depend on how we approach God. All of it depends on where your heart is, how you see him, and when you go to him. But we use the word fear because how else can you evoke the correct response to how big he is and who he is and what he does? What other word can you use to describe the almighty God other than our references in scripture when people saw him, what they say Lord, I'm a man of unclean lips. Please, I don't want, you know. He is awesome and powerful. And if your response to thinking about God does not immediately evoke 
God, you are worthy. When you see these words come across the screen, if it's hard for you to muster and speak those words out of your mouth, then you don't have a clear picture of who God is. If as a grown man, you can't look at those words or hear the words of that song and at least think that and understand that, then you have a bad picture of who God is. This is only a challenge to the people who are struggling, and that's my intent of saying it. If as a grown Christian man, you can't say, and I'm speaking to men specifically, if you can't say, God, you are worthy, and the best place for me and my house is at your feet. The best thing I can do for my wife and my children is put you in the highest place possible in my life and do nothing except what you want me to do. That's what being a man is. But we struggle because we see the world and what it says a man is, and it's all around us, everywhere. It's on your phone. I'll get back on track. I mean, I am on track. But it's just how much you want to dwell and expand on how big God is. I mean, we, we literally, that's what this whole book is about. And it only covers what the words and the English words we can understand, you know? I don't say all of this. I want, I want, to, be, I want to make sure I'm understood. If I, if I just said this last thing and walked off and you thought to yourself, that guy's nuts. I didn't get nothing out of that. Understand that the reason I'm standing up here talking about how big God is and why you should fear him and respect him is because I want you and me to know him more. Because the more we know him and the closer we get to him, the more unashamed we are. Because the number one thing after fearing God in the Bible is what? The fear of man. We don't say what we think in this culture for fear of man. That is sin. To not speak the truth of God's word in this culture is our failure. People will not like it. They crucified Jesus for it. People do not like the truth because it's hard. It's difficult. <clears throat> it's a hard thing. The gift of salvation that Jesus brought to us, what God did for us, he made easy. But wrestling with the knowledge of good and evil, it's no wonder he didn't want them to eat from that tree. That is our crux. That's our nemesis. That's the difficulty of this life is that some things can be good and evil. It's how you approach it and how you do the very same thing. 
If you murder or kill someone in defense of your family, it's a good thing. If you murder or kill someone because you're being selfish, then it's a bad thing. And I know that's a tough one. That's a bad one. But the truth is, all of it hinges on your intentions. Is that weird or what? How, can, how come it can't just be, even our law seg- segregates it? Let's think about that for a second. Even our law can look at the taking of a life and say, well, it matters because why did they do it? And that's exactly, we get our law, and our law comes up out of us. Laws aren't created to control us. Laws come up out of us. Sorry for the history lesson. But law was to come up out of man, and I'm talking about legal law, man's law, not God's law, so that we can govern ourselves and treat each other correctly. It comes out of us. We know that we're living under tyranny when laws are created for the government. And they come out of the government to tell us what's best for us. When we all know what's best for us. You know what I'm saying? So that's why we're in the fix we're in. Because we have been living in sin. And not saying and doing what God says as a culture, as a society. Not to say that people aren't doing it in their own homes, but as a country. As a country, when we decided it was okay and abortion was legal, we ceased being a Christian nation. Because God will visit the sin of shedding of innocent blood unto the third and fourth generation. It doesn't mean that you're going to go to hell for it. What it means is that life is going to be horrible. Because... Payment has to be made for that. There's, there's, there, there. Like if you've lived a lifestyle of sin, I know. You ask Jesus to forgive you and you're forgiven. But that ain't the end of the payment for all that you've done in this world. The legal system still wants their... (laughs) If you've done something wrong, illegal, you can be... Saved and set free in prison. (laughs) You know what I mean? That's where true freedom is. Is in Christ. But you still got to give your ounce of flesh to the legal system. We need to have a right idea about God. He's not a big Santa Claus in the sky fulfilling wishes he isn't a heavenly taskmaster that drives us into serving him. That's not who he is. If you want to wonder, if you ever wonder what the almighty God of the Old Testament would be like if you came face to face with him. If you ever wonder what this God who would consume an entire city because of its sin who promised things to men and promised nations would come out of them and did these great feats and parted the Red Sea and all that he did for the children of Israel. If you ever want to know 
what it would be like to stand face to face with that God, all you have to do is know that that God would be exactly like Jesus. That's his heart towards you. He did all those horrible, terrible things we see in the Old Testament. But that same God is the one who walked in the flesh and, and kneeled down to harlots and hugged lepers. And he's always been that way. And that's what I want to show you in Genesis chapter 3. <clears throat> I want to show you that the God that we know that came to us and died for our sins is the same God then. I want to show you that he doesn't change. He's always been the way that he is now and how we see him through Christ as he was, he was that way in the Old Testament. We know this by reading the story of what we call the fall and refer to as the fall. So I'm going to introduce some thoughts to you that may be challenging about the fall of man in Genesis. Just know that in Hebrews 13, 8, and also in Malachi, it says that he doesn't change. Hebrews 13, 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Malachi said it about him in chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. And in verse 6, after he's getting on to them for all their sin. Is that up there, Malachi? He says, and I will come near to you to judgment. And I, I'm reading King James, but I wanted to put that up there because I like, I like for the King James to conflict with the New American Standard so that I, you think about it. So that it, the words are the same. King James is a good translation. It's just all of these and thous and hitherto therefores are tough to get through. And I will be a, a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers, against the false swearers, against those that oppress the hireling in his wages, the widow and the fatherless. And, and uh, that turn aside the, uh, the, the stranger from his right. And fear me not. Said the, and fear me not, says the Lord of her. So basically they're, all of those things are because people don't fear him says the Lord of hosts, for I am the Lord and I change not. This is the Old Testament. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. So he talks about the sin and how he's coming to judgment, but then he says, but I'm not going to consume you. We have another reference to that, to God being merciful and gracious before what we believe as Christians only exist in the New Testament. Grace and mercy. We can go all the way back to creation to the Garden of Eden. And we see that God extended his grace and mercy to Adam and Eve. Past what you can just read and to what he forces upon them. <clears throat> we know that in the Garden of Eden, Adam had a Adam had a good relationship with God. They walked and talked. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. Let me turn there. I don't want to get in a hurry with this part right here. 
It says, And the Lord took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it, to tend to it, take care of it, guard it. It says, And to keep it. Verse 16 says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you can freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat of it. Because when you eat of it, you are going to die. That's what he tells Adam. Just Adam. Because, well, we'll go through that in a minute. But I want to, so he tells Adam about not eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And remember, that tree is good and evil. It's kind of weird, right? Something inherently good and evil, just like what I was talking about a while ago, it's about your intentions and how you react to something. Don't worry, I'm taking y'all somewhere. Don't fall asleep on me. It says in verse 18, this was, I saw this interesting when I read this and saw it this way. It says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a help meet. I will make and help meet for him, is what the King James says. But what is, how does it read up there? Yeah. But then it goes right into, And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every fowl of the air, and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name. So God creates all this. And I just want to show you this because it shows you the relationship that God had with Adam. He let Adam name them all. God created it all. But then Adam starts, he brings them before Adam and Adam names them. And God takes whatever he calls them. It's pretty interesting. I mean, it shows a a very intimate relationship there. Are you following me with that? Do you agree with that statement? Because it doesn't say that, but it's obvious to me. It'd be like you bringing your son saying, hey, what do you want to name this puppy? And regardless of how ridiculous it is, that's the dog's name for the rest of its life. You know what I'm saying? But this is with all of creation. Adam names these animals, and God says, okay, Adam, that's the way it's going to be then. It's interesting. He's created in God's image. He had, a, he had a relationship with God, a direct relationship between God and man in the garden. Genesis chapter 2, verse 20 says, <clears throat> And Adam gave names to all the cattle, the fowl of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a help meet for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on him. We know this part. Pulls out a rib and creates Eve. So Adam got the command to not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil before Eve even existed. Right? It's important to note that for later on. But I I don't want to miss this as we read through here because this is another issue in our culture about hearing the word of God and this being true. Because later on we're going to discuss Here in just a second, I'm going to read this, where Adam and Eve argued with God because they didn't believe him. They debated 
a topic and thought they could work around it. So it's important to see the truth of what God says and take that and apply it to your life. I mean, you can read it all day long, but if you don't ever apply it, you can have a can of paint, but if it never gets on the wall, then... That may be a bad illustration. It just popped in there. And in verse 23, it says, And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall man leave his father and his mother... And cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And if I have to end right there, I'm going to talk about this. Because we struggle with this in this world. And I want to read to you what I wrote, because I put a lot of thought into it. In verse 24, the spiritual significance... of becoming one flesh. If you've ever been through hell in a relationship and have separated, you've, you've, you know this already. But it's, it's what young people, all of you young people, raise your hand if you're young. Well, everybody can raise their hand. I feel young. <laughs> raise your hand if you're a teenager. Come on. Yeah, I want y'all to hear this. I want you to hear this and hear it well. The consummation, you following me what that is of a marriage? You know what that is? The things marri only married people are allowed to do? Amen. That act joins you to that person in your soul. It says the two become one. And if those people are separated... Two, or one divided by two, is what? What's half of one? Half. Point five. It means that you went from being a whole, single flesh, to being half. That's why this is difficult in our society. If you, if we had a, and I, and listen, I'm not shaming anybody. I want you to hear me clear. I'm trying to explain why it hurts so bad. It's because and we, this is hard, but the truest explanation of that is why a woman would go back to a man who abuses her. What's the explanation for that? Because she is joined at the soul level to that person. And sometimes separation is more painful than the physical abuse. This is why you can't give yourself to somebody else. This is why you don't do that. God's not trying to keep you from something. Just like in the Garden of Eden. He's not trying to keep you from having fun. He's trying to save you from pain. You can look at God's law and the Ten Commandments as rules that you have to follow, or you can look at them as guidelines that are going to save you from a living hell. That's right. 
when you know God and you know his intentions toward you, then those rules are obvious. They're simple. Now, can we follow them? We're not very good at it, obviously. That's why we needed Jesus. But that's God's intention toward us. And I'm going to skip forward here. <clears throat> well, I'm not going to. I've got to read this. <laughs> so I wanted to end that verse about becoming one flesh with reminding you that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. If in everything and in every decision we make, we consider God, then our decisions are going to change. To daily relationships and how we react to the person that we've become one flesh with. If you are harsh and harmful and hurtful and you withhold from that person how you feel and what you think and how you care about them and love them, then that's not wisdom. That's not a fear of God. To keep that relationship right and working, you have to put God first, both people. Because we know, and people who've been through it and have been restored, know that divorce is difficult and painful and hard and only God can make you whole again. And if you ain't whole, then you keep yourself and you make sure that you don't cripple a new relationship because you came in as a half. Don't do it to the other person. You're setting yourself up for failure. That's why young people don't give yourself away. Don't marry and be half of what somebody needed you to be. Because you drag everybody else that you separated yourself with into that marriage. If God doesn't restore you, then you'll never be whole. And the relationship will never be right. The interesting part about Genesis, the end of Genesis chapter 2 says, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, but they weren't ashamed. They weren't ashamed because they were in a constant state of relationship with the Almighty God. It didn't matter if they were naked. He was the most important thing in their life. So I want to start off and introduce a thought to you in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. I'm going to read to y'all real quick. <clears throat> so right after it says, and they were naked and not ashamed, the next chapter says this. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, 
Did God say that ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? See the twist there? He's asking her something that he already knows. He already knows. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of all the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, God said, You can't eat of it. And then listen to this part. Don't even touch it or you'll die. That's not what God told Adam. God told Adam, don't eat it. Where did she get, don't even touch it? She wasn't there when God gave the command. So something's already changed. They're already slipping. I just want to show you that it's been there from the beginning, this struggle we have. <laughs> and God had a plan from the beginning. <clears throat> so the serpent says, you won't die. There's your first lie, first doubt sown. For God knows when you eat it that your eyes will be open. And you'll be as God's knowing good and evil. So we don't know that God wasn't ever going to let them eat from that tree. All we know is that he had told them up to that point, don't eat it. And they ate it. Good and evil, by the way, like I said. And then all of a sudden, they were ashamed. But then God extends mercy to them. As you keep reading... And he says, as if he needed someone to tell him. He says, Adam, where are you? And what does Adam say? This is us now. This is how we think. This is a story about us. What does Adam say? Well, I heard you coming. <laughs> so I hid myself. We spend most of our lives trying to hide what doesn't please God from him. And it don't work. But at least he feared God. So then he says, hey, did you eat from that tree that I told you not to eat of? And, what, and, and Adam spills the beans and repents and confesses his sin. No, he don't. He says, Remember that tree that you put in the garden? That woman took some fruit off of it and gave it to me. There was Adam's chance to repent. He responded like we respond. Not like he would have responded before he ate the fruit. So then he says, he gives, he gives Eve her chance. And what does she say? Well, that devil... That serpent. And neither one of them confessed their sin. And say, you're right, God. You told us not to do that, and we did. That's the last question God asked. And then he moves into punishment. Or what we see as punishment. Because as you read through that chapter, you realize, what is, because they were ashamed. They immediately made clothes of fig leaves and all this. 
<coughs> because they, now all of a sudden they knew they were naked and they were ashamed. So what does being ashamed, so he tells them, where this, you know, he gives them punishments of what's all going to happen to them. And then he says, lest they, take from the, lest they take fruit from the tree of life and eat it and live forever, we have to, we got to get, we got to get them out of here. Because what does living forever in a virtual paradise, but separate from God and ashamed for eternity, what is that place called? So God's mercy drove them out of the garden so that they would have a path back to the tree of life through Christ then. And how do we know that was always his plan? Because after he punishes them, what does God do? He makes coats of skins for them. Well, they were vegetarians. I can prove it. Go back and read Genesis 129. That they only ate. They didn't eat meat. So where do the animal skins come from? Where did God just slaughter and tan some hides real quick? Where'd they come from? What would be the reason that animals were killed if they didn't eat them? And skins made out of them. Because God had had them sacrificing before they had ever sinned. He had taught them the importance of it. And we know they already knew it because immediately when you move into Cain and Abel, they have already, they're grown men and they had already been sacrificing. That was the issue. God, the fall, is simply the story of how we got where we are. We were always going to end up there because that's what engaged our free will. That's what gives us the ability, if we're walking in a heavenly realm, constantly with God, how are we ever going to realize how much, how much we need him? How are we ever going to choose him of our own free will. God's plan for you was not to drive you out of paradise. It was to give you a way to get back. So when someone's preaching the gospel and tells you Jesus Christ died for your sins and he wants to save you, that is God's path back to where he had always intentioned for you to be. And it started at the very beginning of the Bible. It was always the plan, and we call it the fall, and it is. It's an exit from where we want to go back to, being in his presence, continually moving away strife and death and pain and all of these things. Just read that. Y'all go back and read this. I skipped over two whole pages of my notes, but this would take hours because the punishment for what they did wrong is just normal life for us. It brings us so much joy, but it's so painful. Bearing children is one of the toughest things women do, but it's also the greatest joy of their life. It's good and bad.
I ain't going to say evil. (laughs) Okay, I'm really going to close. The point of fearing God is that we approach him, the almighty God, in fear, respect, admiration, and love through the work of Christ. He joined us back to him, reconciled us back to him in that constant relationship through the work of Christ. This is not a simple thing. That is not a simple thing to do and accomplish. The simple thing is for us to go, yeah, I hear that. And by faith, we accept it. And then all kinds of miraculous things happen. All of a sudden, we believe without seeing things. I can read this book right beside another man and him go, what in the world? And I read it and go, oh, yeah. And I'm not saying it's me in particular. I'm saying us. Now you have the ability to read this and go, oh, I see God. And somebody else reads it and goes, what in the world does that mean? Understand the spiritual significance of being in a relationship with him and what Jesus did for you. He made the relationship right again. Now we have to choose how intimate we want to be in that relationship. We have to decide daily, minute by minute, decision by decision, app upon app, picture upon picture, video upon video, what direction we want our life to go. Because this can be good and evil. You can look at bad things and read bad things and see bad things and whatever else. And you can also read the Bible on here. You have to choose. Just like Adam and Eve had the opportunity to choose. But if you don't make the bad choice, you don't have to repent. (laughs) Isn't that funny? I want to read another quote before I end. I want to read Proverbs chapter 14. Verse 26. In the fear of the Lord is strong confidence, and his children shall have a place of refuge. The fear of the Lord is the fountain of life. Listen to this part. To depart from the snares of death. We know Adam and Eve didn't fall over and kill over when they ate the fruit. Their death was separation from God. God doesn't want you to be separate from him. That's why he gave us Jesus. He wants you there. He is a great and powerful, mighty God. Everything we know and see came out of his mouth in a word. And light that travels at 186,000 miles per second was created in a sentence out of his mouth. That God that God wants to walk and talk with you every day, all the time. You can't hide from him. So turn your face to him and see what happens. When things are too hard to face, instead of going back to the bottle, where you're going to end up ashamed and calling out to him anyway, just remember him, fear him, and turn your face toward him and everything changes.
when you look at life through that lens, all of your problems get smaller. It's good to compare where you are and your problems with how big he is because he doesn't change. They just get smaller. I'm going to to read this quote to you all and pray. In that book, The Knowledge of the Holy, one of the quotes that just killed me. He said, We return as the prodigal son returned and are welcomed by God. As we approach the garden, our home before the fall, the flaming sword that he put to guard the tree of life is withdrawn. And the keepers, the cherubim that were standing guard, step aside when they see a son of grace approach. Through Christ, the eternity with God that he wants to restore us to, the guards step away and we have free access to an eternity with him. These are the decisions you're making. That's why serving God just doesn't exist in this building. It's in every decision. How you do your job, how you drive your car, how you eat your food. He's either part of everything in your life or he isn't. We don't get to choose when he's involved and when he isn't. He's always there. Has anybody seen that movie, His Only Son? There's some... They take some liberties, but there's a couple of things in there. First of all, within the first six minutes, when God tells Abraham to take your son, your only son, and offer him up as a burnt offering to me, immediately all of my sons pop into my head and I think to myself, could not do that and it convicts me I could not turn them over like that and I thought to myself how does Abraham do this and then there's a scene where he's about to sacrifice the night before and he's crying out to God God please don't do this thing don't make me do this find some other way but what, nevertheless, your will. And God doesn't answer. He had already told Abraham what to do. And this is just a scene, but just the picture of it. Abraham gets up and walks off, and the camera backs off to God standing right above Abraham as he's praying. But he just doesn't say anything. He hears you. He knows. Don't forget. Keep him fresh in your mind and in your heart. And I know this is heavy, y'all. But God's big. And it requires us to dig into these things. He demands it of us. Go to him. Turn your face to him. Ask for wisdom. And dwell on the word of God. And everything else around you pales in comparison. All the problems and struggles fade away Father we thank you today Lord we thank you for your word Lord we believe but help our unbelief
Help us to see you in everything. To see what you want us to do and the directions you want us to go. And help us to realize that your way is the only way we need to worry about. We trust you and love you, Lord, in this world that we live in. And we know that you've empowered us to be successful and live for you and advance the kingdom of God here and now. We thank you that you've opened our hearts and you've shown us something today, Lord, new that will draw us closer to you and make you and and allow us to know you more. In Jesus' name, amen. Go home.